Chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him that they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word and let's pause in prayer and ask him to help us understand what it is and what to do with it. Father in heaven, we thank you again for... This time in your house, uh, at this point, at your feet as your students. Lord, teach us from your word. Be our teacher. May we be good students. And Lord, may you, uh, for the time being, uh, dismiss any distractions that would keep us from learning. And uh, that for your glory. We thank you for this in your precious name. Amen. Now, last week was about... Promises, And if you remember the first nine verses or so from chapter 12, it had to do with God promising one man. His name was Abram. We know him best as Abraham. His name was changed later. He promised that he would be the father of a multitude, of a nation, uh, that his, his, his children would number the sands on the seashore, the stars in the heavens. Those are euphemisms, of course. But this is a man who has no children at that point. And we talked about how there wasn't anything special about Abraham. This favor came from God's direction. And he chose him for this. And the whole point of the message last week was God keeps his promises even if we don't. And I mentioned then that Abraham's going to do things that are not so becoming of a man we would hold up as the patriarch of the whole Jewish nation. And we're going to see that. We just read about it. Uh, not the best move to tell your wife that she should say that you're her sister so that they won't kill you for her if they decide they want her and are bigger than you and can take her from you. Uh, So I thought if, if last week is about promises, maybe this is about promises broken. But in fact, the passage that we read, and I hope to be able to show you this in the next few minutes, it's still about how God keeps His promises. Abraham is not acting as he should, but it doesn't void the promise that God made. He still intends to keep his promise. This man will still be the father of an entire nation, and the rest of the world would be blessed by this man. But it looks like he's getting in the way of what God is trying to do. But God still does what he's going to do in spite of what Abraham is doing. 
So in preparation for this, I thought, well, if last week I looked up uh, maybe the world's best-known promises kept, which I decided wasn't worth bringing to the message because it really wasn't that big a deal. Humanity's not known for keeping their promises. So I looked up world's best-known broken promises, and the first category that came up was presidential campaigns. <laughs> I probably don't need to say anything other than the most famous would be read my lips, no new taxes, didn't last very long. But there was one in the list that was pretty clean, but he was the one that never campaigned. He was president but not elected, and that would have been Gerald Ford. So he gets a pass. But there was another category that came along, and that was athletics and sports. And you have some standouts like Babe Ruth who could, you know, call his, his, his shot. And uh, Joe Namath who gets lucky and uh, shouldn't have guaranteed a win but got one anyway. And you have this whole list of big shots who guarantee a win and got absolutely smeared by the time the game was over. Uh, there's a whole list of gurus who promised uh, if you follow these 12 steps or whatever, it'll all work out. Those are broken promises. And then as far as uh, religion goes, probably the most famous is the 88 reasons why the Lord will return in 1988. <laughs> I've, I've often wanted to find a copy of that just to have it, just to stick on the shelf as indication of, of our own hubris with our Bibles in our hands to think that we can figure everything out down to a specific year. But uh, all those are broken promises. And it looks as if Abraham is, is in trouble here. Um, but God's going to be faithful all the way through the end. So uh, to jump right in with the contents of the, the last 11 verses of, of Genesis 12... I'm not really settled on the notion that it was wrong of Abraham to go to Egypt in the first place because I do remember that that was a pattern in preaching I heard growing up uh, in different places that anywhere in Genesis where you see any of the patriarchs, Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph going to Egypt is always a bad thing. And if they'd stayed out of Egypt, they'd stayed out of trouble. With this, um, Abraham seems to be feeling his way forward without specific revelation from heaven. He's building altars to call on the name of the Lord in two places we saw last week. But I just don't see evidence that he was told not to go down there. In fact, the famine is severe. He left a place toward the Fertile Crescent where you got two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, that keep uh, crops growing. But then in the hill country there in Canaan, they're known for droughts and famines. We're going to see this a lot through Genesis. But then over into Egypt, North Africa, that big Nile River that flows north and that whole delta region is just green as it can be and stayed that way. So if you're starving in Canaan, all through history, you would go to Egypt. And that's what he does here. Um, so really, it seems to have would look to anyone who serves God or not the best idea. Even so, from what we read, all the indications from this passage point to a move not further into faith, but into fear, as far as Abraham goes. It looks as if he's afraid here, and, and maybe he should be. He's starving, and where he's got to go get the food, he doesn't seem to be a very hospitable place. 
We don't read that Abraham stopped to inquire of God or build an altar in any of these places. Seems he's on his own initiative. He seems clever. He seems shrewd. He seems to have taken everything into account, but it doesn't seem that we have any evidence that he checked this plan with his God, who on faith he moved from Haran, left his family and his stuff, all by faith that was counted to him for righteousness. This chapter is different. So the point of the story is still that God's promises are online and will not fail. Uh, This man will be the father of a multitude. The world will be blessed through him. Even at the distraction point of the first time he's hungry, the first time he's afraid, the first time he's given riches that he didn't earn, we see that too, it looks like his vision is lost and the whole promise may seem to be in jeopardy if it rides on his shoulders. Sometimes we're reading, we think, well, this must be some fine upstanding citizen, Abram. And then we look, no, he looks like the rest of us. He's a mess. And he's doing what seems expedient at the moment. So by the time the story ends, it's going to take plagues to restore his wife, Sarah, and a deportation to get him back to Canaan where he is supposed to be. And all the while, God's promises are kept. So the passage, I don't know how familiar you may be with it, but there's questions, there's problems with this passage. I don't want to say problems. The Word of God's inspired. He wrote it the way He wanted to, and we get what we've been given. But the inquiring mind wants to know about a few things, and the problem lies in that we don't have enough information, even from other places in Scripture, to answer all the curiosity of of our mind. The major questions uh, involve Abraham's lie to protect himself, His wife Sarah's beauty, that seems to be a problem. And then the Pharaoh's overreach of power in taking her. You could flip that around and say it in other words. Did Abraham really lie? Was Sarah really beautiful? And did the Pharaoh really overreach? Or was the Pharaoh just doing Pharaoh things? Now we're going to want to assess a moral judgment. He did right, he did wrong, Pharaoh did right, Pharaoh did wrong. Sarah should have put up with it or didn't put up with it. And we're going to have to remind ourselves at several turns in this book of Genesis that Genesis' purpose is not to give us a running moral assessment on the behavior of our patriarchs in the faith. Genesis' purpose is to show us how God is faithful through all of it. God is being God and people are being people and Through Genesis, we're even going to know more than when we start. We're going to need salvation here. Uh, He's holy, we're not, and we can't fix ourselves. We're going to learn how he deals with people and how he's fair with them and faithful to them when his people are not fair and not faithful to him. But we're not going to find out at the end of the chapter in little footnotes, uh, yeah, Abraham was wrong, or he shouldn't have gone to Egypt, or Pharaoh had more character than Abraham did. That's for us to look and see and pair with other places in Scripture and do the best we can with it. So let's start with the first one. Was it a lie? And again, if you know your Bibles well, you may know that Sarah is actually Abram's half-sister. So technically speaking, maybe he can say that he's not lying. Say that you are my sister is 
technically true. Abram's wife was his half-sister. We'll get to that later in the record of Genesis. So would that make it a half-truth? Okay, if it's a half-truth, then is that half-truth covering up the other part of the half-truth? Let's use the technical truthful part of the story to cover up what other part of the truth we don't want them to know. I'm afraid we're going to have to hit the deception buzzer. (laughs) You are being deceptive even though you're technically truthful. So Abraham's attempt to defend himself is silence at the end when Pharaoh says, what is this that you've done? So I think that's enough to confirm that even Abraham knew that his half-truth was full deception. So that one's a little easier, I think, to solve than some of the rest of them. Uh, if, if, and, and really, I don't think we want to completely throw out the situation he's in or mitigate his concerns. He's an immigrant or an alien in a, in a place where he's needing food, where they don't have it. Uh, he doesn't speak that language natively. Uh, I'm sure they don't have police stations and the little uh, thing with the blue light on top if you get in trouble that you go to. This, this is the ancient world. He has plenty to be afraid of. So when we get to, if we keep reading, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. The Bible doesn't often say things about beauty, much less physical beauty. Or appearance. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. It sounds like he's worried about it, and he, he has reason to be worried about it. But we need to answer the question, is this merely the opinion of a neurotically jealous man? Have you ever met somebody like that? you looking at my wife. <laughs> That's far eclipsed by, you looking at my girlfriend. It's even worse, right? And you're like, dude, I, I have to walk in that direction. I'm sorry. Um, is that what's going on here? Well, if we keep reading, verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And then they report that all the way up to Pharaoh. So they concur with Abraham. Everybody agrees that this is a beautiful woman. So uh, there's not a problem as to whether or not she was actually beautiful. The problem is with the modern reader who knows their Bible and knows that this is a 65-year-old woman. That's the problem the commentators want to wrestle with. And before I share with you what I learned from scholars through commentaries, places that I go to study for sermons... Um, maybe to all husbands in the room, including myself, we need to remember that here we have a bona fide biblical precedent for the preservation of beauty at significant age to the point we could call it dangerously beautiful. Right? So, fellas, if you ever need something in your pocket for when you're in trouble, just read the verse about dangerous beauty and say that your wife is definitely one of them. No matter how old or young she happens to be. It can happen. It does happen. And that, I say, before I read you the first, which I truly believe to be the weakest argument to explain beautiful appearance at 65, was by none other than John Calvin. 
Ever heard of John Calvin? You don't know what John Calvin said? John Calvin said that this can be understood by the fact that childless women preserve their beauty better and longer than mothers. I'm reading this and thinking, my goodness, times have changed. This, this, we would not know his name if that were in print recently. But being it was almost 500 years ago, perhaps he can get by with it. But I officially dissent as far as that agreement. With no less than five children, I think my wife is far more dangerously beautiful than when I met her. I really believe that. Now, the thing I said the other day was just a joke, and I know that after the joke that I made, and I had to explain to you after I saw the look on her face, she had just been texted by the nursery that she needed to leave. But she had to sit there patiently long enough for you not to think that she was walking out (laughs) after what I said that I said. But maybe the comment of my insistence that she's dangerously beautiful will patch all that up. (laughs) I truly do believe that. So that, I think, is a ridiculous idea. The best idea that I saw, and many agree with, is that it lies with the patriarchal lifespan difference. Patriarchs means Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But before the flood, they lived to 600 years old or so. After the flood, that started getting shorter and shorter. Uh, You've got Abraham dying at 175, Sarah at 127, their grandson Jacob at 130, and the description of their activity in chapter 22 of Genesis, where Abram is 110, he seems to be acting in ways that we would refer to people at maybe 70. So if this is not just extra age tacked onto the end and they age just like we do, so our 80 would be their 80 and then they get another you know, 100 and some years, some of them, they just get really, really old and feeble. I don't, that doesn't match the biblical record. It seems um, it's stretched out to where, say, if you live to 100, middle age is 50. If you live to 200, middle age is 100. So if that's the way this works, Sarah's 60s, would be more like our late 30s or early 40s. And her 90s, when she had Isaac, would be more perhaps like our 50s, which is generally considered past bearing children, but still enough to be sort of miraculous or at least to laugh at when we read about it in the chapters ahead. So I'll leave that with you. But if you add the two elements, Abram's deception, she's my sister, and her stunning, dangerously uh, attractive beauty, some suggest that Abram was open to the notion, should it be necessary to save their lives from hunger, to sacrifice his wife's honor for his own skin and financial gain, that he might have been in on this with the Pharaoh. I don't see any evidence for that. Though the record doesn't give us details for sure, I kind of go along with many of the other commentators that say, yeah, he gave her that speech. She agreed. If there was unwanted attention, maybe they could cut it off by saying, she's my sister. But he didn't account for the fact it would go as far as the palace. 
and all the way to Pharaoh. If Pharaoh wants Sarah, there's little Abram can do about that. Now, we're going to see him take care of business in the following chapters. But in this case, at this point, he probably realizes, I've, I've messed up royally. Uh, and this is going to cost me my wife. But if we keep reading, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt with Abram, this is what kings used to do. If they took something from you, just to show their wealth and, and good nature, he gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, both male and female, and camels. And people have said, camels, that's not true. They didn't ride camels at that point in time. And then we found later, yeah, they did, which would mean that it's even more luxurious. It was like Model T camels instead of like Tesla camels, I suppose. <laughs> so the point of it all is he's been paid for this wife that was taken. But while I'm reading through this and thinking, okay, what's the point? Where are we going with all this? What popped into my head was, this is just not the way we write stories. This is another indication, I believe, to, to support the integrity of the Scriptures, not as made up, but as history. Because this is not a good movie. There's, there's no hero here. The bad guy is the hero. Because the bad guy actually has more moral character and judgment at the end. Hey, take her back. I don't want her. She's yours. We don't do that. And keep the stuff. Just go. But at, at this point, you know, the next thing that popped in my head off the word taken there, I'm thinking if we were making a movie out of this, if, if, if Americans wrote this story, you know, there'd be a phone call. And then Abram picks up the phone among all these guys that went there with him. And uh, because nobody says anything, he just starts with, I don't know who you are or what you want. And if it's ransom... I can tell you I don't have any money, but what I do have is a particular set of skills. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Liam Nielsen and his famous taken speech on the phone. It had to do with his daughter. There's objectionable content in the movie. Don't go watch it this afternoon. Said I told you to do it. Um, I always give that disclaimer. But by the end of it, he's basically said, I can find you. If you don't return her now, I will find you and I will kill you. And if we were reading that, we'd, yes, this Bible is awesome. He's going to take on the Pharaoh, get his wife back. Now, he will get his nephew Lot back from some bad guys later. But in this case, it doesn't end like that. God Almighty has to bring plagues to his house and convince the pagan king that this man Abram's wife shouldn't be messed with or touched. You're going to have to give her back. So this is a case of God making a promise, breaking the promises off the table, but the one in which he's agreed to bless the people through the next millennia worth of generations has kind of gone off in left field, and he'll have to be corrected. That's the way the biblical story goes. So if we keep reading, verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram. He's summonsed. And then listen to how he does it. What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? 
Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Sounds reasonable to me. His anger is reasonable. If he wouldn't have done this, if he'd have known the truth, then he feels violated, set up, cheated, or just wrong time, wrong place in this man's scheme to try to protect himself. What's interesting is that Pharaoh takes no revenge on Abram. He doesn't touch him. doesn't harm him. doesn't throw him in jail. doesn't take back what he had and Abram's stuff. Um, maybe this is implicitly pointing to his recognition that God is protecting Abraham or a God from his perspective. doesn't even retrieve his livestock and servants that were given. He just wants him to go. Abraham has nothing to say here. Now, again, that's an argument from silence. Abraham could have said something, but as far as the record goes, we don't hear him saying anything. Perhaps he knows more than anyone else that this is his fault. Maybe it's because he knows that this pagan king fears an unknown God more than Abram fears the God who promised him the world. You ever find yourself in a situation where... You're a believer, you're a Christian, you know your Bible, you know morality, you know how you're supposed to act, and you watch someone else who knows none of that act in a more moral or possess more character in a pinch than maybe you do, and it's it's a hard lesson. I've been in that situation more times than I want to count. It could be something as simple as us. Somebody needs help over here, and um, you're you're not the first one there. I don't know. You, you it's your life. <laughs> you make up your own random situation, but it happens. It's happening here, and we need to be careful at the end, summing all this up and making an application, because on paper, it may look like Abram's noble lie to protect himself and his wife worked for him. In one way it did and in one way it didn't. He did get his wife back, seemingly unharmed. He even got to keep all the wealth that was given to him. And he gets to leave without a scratch. Some would say, hey, ends justify the means. I don't see a problem here. But did Abraham deserve to come out with more riches than he went in? No. None of us do. He didn't deserve to be promised everything by the Lord, nor do we. But rather because God is true to his promises and because he will need to be a great nation, he can't lose his wife who's going to bear Isaac, and he's going to need a starter kit on, you know, that big plantation to be Mr. Head of the Jewish race. But in the next chapter, we're going to find out there's a lot of problems that come with his newfound riches. Where they seemed a whole happy clan, Lot's going to want to go over here. Abram's going to go over here. And they're going to fight over the stuff. It's going to get complicated. Wouldn't have happened. Maybe. Have you ever gotten frustrated in your own personal life thinking, all right, I believe this book. I make decisions in real time every day. 
I made two good ones, a bad one, maybe a halfway bad one, and then a good one, and then a miserably bad one. And then it did pretty good for maybe a week and a half. Do you ever look back on that and think, well, if I had done it this way or hadn't done it that way, sometimes that can be helpful, right? You can learn, you can adapt. If, you know, you touch the wood stove and it burns, don't do it again. You know, that's just being a child. But you can overdo the looking backward and if, when, how, you know, uh, kind of like the idea that if Israel had accepted their Messiah when Jesus came in the royal entry, we could have skipped the cross and went right to the millennium. But then how do you pay for sin? He had to be sacrificed. There's, there's our part of that story. And don't think that we wouldn't have been standing there saying crucify him too. And then there's God's part of the story. And it would be Peter in the first message who say, uh, preordained by the will of God, you killed with wicked hands. So God's got the steering wheel, but you're still wicked in killing him. What does that mean? Mysteriously enough, because our head can't wrap around infinity, it means God's going to keep his promise, but you're morally responsible to choose him for salvation. It's predestination and free will at the same time in the same Bible. You must believe, but he's going to save you because of your belief. You don't have to work for it. We come up against that same thing. Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere we turn, it's everywhere. So, did Abraham deserve it? No. But God's going to be true to the promise. Next chapter will show us complications that come from Abram's mistakes. But God's going to keep his promise. So the real point of the story is that even when God's people get in their own way, God is still true to what he's promised us and everyone. And then you may want to write this down. I found it. I liked it. God's protection and God's provision, we pray for those things, are for the sake of God's promise as much as they are for our good. He will provide. He will protect. But ultimately, those are because He promised to keep us, not to bail us out of a bad problem that's probably the result of our bad decisions. He may let us sit in that for a while. All of our bodies are going to die, but he's promised to save our souls. So at a certain point, we can pray for healing, and what we're going to get is the answer that he's going to heal us eternally, not temporarily here in this life. Some of these things are easy enough for children to understand, but some of them are complex enough to baffle the adult mind. God's provision, God's protection are for the sake of God's promise and despite our failures. So in this story, we've got both rebuke and the rebuke came from Pharaoh. And I think Abram knew it was coming. But there's also hope. They got out of it. Better off than when they got into it. And they're headed back to the promised land. And uh, God's going to be true. So, rebuke and hope. And I thought that might be a good way for us to transition over into our communion service. Because there's certainly hope 
there. We're remembering the process by which Jesus purchased our salvation through his death, then his burial, then his resurrection and ascension into heaven. It's the hope of heaven, and it's ours because of what he did. That's the rebuke. It took his life to pay for our sins. If you ever want to know the seriousness of your sin and whether or not God takes sin seriously, serious enough to cost him the blood of his only begotten son. Uh, How did that phrase go? Um, I think it was Preston that read it on Wednesday night. It comes out of the book of Acts where... uh, Paul's speaking to a group of people he'll never see again. And he implores them uh, to faithfully care for the flock, the church, that was purchased with the blood of his own son. If you you ever want to think about it, if you're leaving town for an indefinite amount of time and you need to leave your most valuable possessions, let's say your family, uh, your dangerously beautiful wife and your kids, do you just get anybody? Hey, you mind keeping an eye on them while I'm gone? No. You get the best you can find because it's that important to you. So if you're talking about the bride of Christ, that's you and I, what's more precious to God than that? Enough to purchase it with the blood of his own son. You, we don't have reference points for that order of magnitude. So, rebuke, yes. Hope, yes. And uh, we're going to observe communion. Uh, We do this quarterly. For those of you that have been here for a long time, you know what this looks like. And for those of you who may be newer to the church or visiting with us this morning, I usually say a few things before we do, and we're going to have a few moments of quiet so you can prepare your hearts for this after which I'll come and finish in prayer and I'll call our uh, deacons up that will be helping us uh, pass along the elements, as we call them. Uh, but I, I always say we don't practice closed communion. Some churches do that, where you have to be a member to partake. We rather call it close communion. If you're a brother or sister in Christ, you've believed on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, To pay for your sins, you exchange your sins for his righteousness such that his father looks at you like he would look at his son and that's yours if you believe that by faith and repent of your sins. Then we would love for you to observe communion with us. Now if you're a parent and you've got a child and you don't know that what I just said would make sense to them, you're the parent and you know better than any of the rest of us. Probably the safest thing is just to let it pass until there is a time where it does make sense to them. That way you don't uh, make something that's massively important not so important. But uh, with that said, I'd also add, sometimes communion is a good time for uh, things to be discussed or said within a a family because this is kind of more family-like than maybe other things that we do. But there's two matters of prayer that I thought I'd bring before we do communion. And the first is we've said goodbye to one of our, our sisters here at church. Uh, Catherine Adcock went home to be with the Lord early this past Friday morning. 
Now, the arrangements are not set just yet, and uh, David Brown will be officiating that service uh, as his relationship with her goes way back. He's in the Dominican Republic now. They'll do that when they get back, but as far as the the date, uh, later this week, we don't have that yet. But uh, some uh, learned this morning in an attempt to take her the communion elements down the street here at Windsor Point found out well, she didn't need them anymore. She's home in glory. She doesn't need to remember me as often as you do this. Uh, she can see him face to face. But the other request, if you may recall, it was a couple of Sundays ago I mentioned that someone had gotten some bad news in this body. And uh, it was early and didn't really know everything yet, so I, I didn't mention his name. Johnny Jones. And before Christmas, he came to the office and every year usually brings the staff a Ziploc bag full of sausage and ham. And I fixed that on Christmas Eve and then went to the hospital to see him. He still didn't know yet. But he's got cancer and where it is, Surgery and chemo is not going to do him any good. So when they finish up at the hospital later this week, he'll go to hospice care. And uh, just the way in which you pray sometimes, you really don't know what to say because sometimes everything's a surprise when we find our end. Sometimes we get a heads up. Sometimes it seems as though um, the writing's just on the wall. But this family needs their church. And they need their prayers. And uh, they may need to see you. They may need some peace and quiet. But there's not a lot of time. And last I told him is, hey, I think the way the, the exchange rate goes in heaven, we're only a few minutes behind you. And again, I'm jealous in some ways. Um, but I thought maybe to just add a... a in the, the service order books of old, communion is considered a somber service. Um, just to think of the frailty of life might help us remember what our Lord asked us to remember. So without going any further, I'm going to start us in prayer. We'll have some space to pray ourselves where you are. I'll come back and finish the prayer, and then we'll get to business. Let's pray. Father in heaven... You know our form. You made us out of the dirt and then breathed into that dirt your life. Lord, because of sin, that life has its expiration here on this planet. But because of your son's death on the cross, that life can be eternal past that veil. Lord, our hearts are heavy. In one way, glad to say goodbye. To someone advanced in years, but sorrowful to say goodbye, and what we would say early. And Lord, you're the great physician. We know little. You've given us medicine and so much else. But Lord, would you hold these families tight? Would you rally this church around them? Lord, would you 
see fit to show us your face in a way maybe we haven't seen before. And Lord, might you start with our own examination of our heart and our soul and our mind against your word and your morality. And Lord, would you start with this simple act of obedience to your command to remember you in communion. Lord, with that said, would you prompt our thoughts and hear our hearts. We ask this in your name.